Welcome to the final episode of the Revolving Doors podcast and thanks so much for listening. Revolving Doors is a charity that aims to break the cycle of crisis and crime for individuals who have repeat contact with the criminal justice system. My name's Anna Henry and I'm the Director of Policy. In our second episode, we focused on the importance of police-assisted diversion. And now in this third and final episode, we're going to talk about the benefit of international collaboration. And to do that, I'm delighted to welcome Brendan Cox and Dana Owens from the US-based nonprofit, The Lead Bureau. So how did the idea to take the lead model outside of the USA come about? So it's been really interesting. You know, the work we do is really grassroots. Um, we don't really consider ourselves uh, salespeople. We don't, uh, we don't do outreach to people. We don't uh, send people brochures. We don't, we don't go to a ton of conferences. We usually go to conferences when we're invited to do things and make presentations. Um, but we've really gained a lot of thought partners over the years. Uh, one of the big thought partners internationally has been Open Society Foundation. And in doing that work, a lot of folks have really reached out to us to just kind of ask, like, you know, what is it you're all doing and what can we learn from each other? And I think that's where the international work has really taken off is through that, um, through that outreach of how this fits with what other folks are doing internationally. Um, we've done a couple of presentations at the Law Enforcement Public Health uh, Conference, and I think that certainly um, drew some, some folks to want, wanting to know, including Revolving Doors. But I do think a lot of it is just grassroots. Uh, it's people looking to see what's happening. I certainly can say from my own experiences in law enforcement that I think a lot of people do want to learn from others what is happening to increase public safety and what is happening to, uh, to bridge those gaps. And I think that, thankfully, a lot of people are trying to look at public health approaches to public safety. And, uh, you know, we are. We're a public health approach. So I think that, is, that has helped us out. And now we're involved in, a, in many more international forums. Uh, we all, uh, we're all a big part of the global law enforcement public health network now. So I think the association, so that, that has helped us out a lot. But yeah, I think there's just been, you know, it's interesting, some of the calls we get, some of the emails we get from different places where we're like, how is it that this country is reaching out to us um, to try to learn from us? And it winds up being um, beneficial for, for, to, for both sides to be able to learn what's happening. Where did you go on your first overseas trip with Lead Bureau? And can you, can you tell us a bit about it and some of the highlights? Yeah, so it's interesting. So I will, I'll talk more about South Africa because that is where it seems like we're going to take off with some lead initiatives. Um, but we've actually been to a bunch of places. I think the first one to, to talk about is uh, Ukraine, which is, of course, relevant today. But we went to the Ukraine to, to talk to a, a host of countries um, mainly from the Eastern Bloc uh, of Europe. Moldova, Georgia, Kyrgyzstan, and the Ukraine were there. And it was about lead and it was about community policing. And we focused on lead and how that could fit into community policing uh, models. And what was interesting, and it was kind of our first learning lesson, was that Kyrgyzstan really picked up on lead and really wanted to start lead. And they wound up using the lead model as the, the kind of the core basis for a, a program that they wound up starting. And it was a learning lesson for us because, you know, we're very used to pre-arrest, um, harm reduction-based diversion programs. And what it taught us was that we had to be ready to 
change a little bit when it came to other countries and recognize that everybody is bound by their own law and by what their government is ready for them to do. So they started a program that is, that is much more like a probation-based program, but it was a huge step for them. So that, that, that was really the first venture that, that we had internationally where somebody was actually going to try to implement LEAD and where that ultimately took off. Do you want to tell us a bit about your trip to South Africa? We started talking to, the, to, to folks in South Africa, to a few community-based agencies, about how they could implement LEAD in South Africa, specifically how they could do something in Cape Town, Durban, and Pretoria, and how they could implement that along some of the different um, harm reduction services that they were trying to get off the ground and what the model could look like in the context of the South African experience. So, you know, we were really humbled to be able to go to South Africa and learn from them what was happening and share, um, share what we had. So we were able to, to take a, a, a trip there um, right before the pandemic, and we visited all three of those cities, Cape Town, Durban, and Pretoria. And all three cities had really different landscapes of what the issues were and what would need to be implemented. But we had really great meetings um, in each of the locations um, with both community-based um, agencies, um, some doing just amazing work, amazing harm reduction work in the community, with police, both the South African National Police and the local police. All three of those cities have, have their own uh, police, police agencies, that metropolitan police agencies. So we had really good meetings with, with, with all of those agencies who really did want to know what was happening and how they could, uh, how they could utilize a pre-arrest diversion initiative. And with folks with lived experiences. And uh, in Durban, we had this amazing uh, meeting where we had police and people lived experience in the room. And the folks that lived experience really talked about some of the trauma that had happened at the hands of the police. I don't know if they've ever had a meeting like that before, but I can say that it was clear that it appeared to be something new um, that people were not used to happening, but not one officer walked out of that room. Not one officer looked upset like, this isn't what I came for. Instead, those officers stood there and sat and listened and took it in. And I think it was a kind of a groundbreaking meeting for them because it, it was, and I remember, you know, going through some of those meetings myself in my career where you finally hear from folks that have been traumatized by laws and traumatized by abuse. And you finally realize, okay, we need to do something differently. And in talking to the Durban police officers that were with us on that, that leg of the tour, Afterwards, they, they realized that they need to change, that they need to do something different. So, you know, looking forward, it looks like in Durban, we're going to be able to go back, hopefully this year, and be able to implement an initiative. They were able to open up a facility where they're doing a medical assistant therapy. They're doing a methadone program, and that was brand new. When we were first there, they didn't have a methadone program. And they're also doing drop-in services. So they had shared a picture recently of a uh, Durban police officer 
who had a person in custody, and on the way to the, the jail, they stopped at the center to get that person their dose of methadone. So the officer was smart enough to say, smart enough and, and, and had the, the right heart, the right mindset, to say, here's somebody who needs their medication, and rather than me have them suffer and start to go through withdrawal symptoms while they're in my custody, let me stop and get them their methadone. Because, unfortunately, South Africa is a lot like the United States where, God forbid, we give somebody their uh, prescription. They have to stop and go to the methadone clinic. So he stopped and got them their methadone on the way to, to, to the jail. So they shared that picture with us, and, and it kind of inspired us as we're starting to figure out what the model can look like, is that maybe that the clinic and drop-in services can be the place where officers can, can number one, bring people when they need help, um, and number two, do some social contact referrals. You know, we haven't talked a lot about the, the, the models of LEAD um, and the ways in, um, but, you know, there's the, typical, there's the traditional arrest diversion uh, but then there's that case where an officer already knows somebody who's involved in the system and they offer them help through lead. And as we talk, I think more internationally, we realize that that second model, and especially in the trip to South Africa, that the social contact referral system might actually be the way to go in South Africa because they do deal with some national laws that, that can be problematic for pre-arrest aversion. So, you know, we think that's what we're going to be able to do. But, you know, South Africa was stunning in, in so many ways. And, and at one moment, you, I saw things that were the most beautiful, spectacular things I've ever seen. And at the next moment, you saw some of the most heartbreaking things. It's been great from the perspective of Revol Endorsed to host Lee Bureau here in, in the UK over the past couple of weeks. With us, you've been to Blackpool, Liverpool, Leicester, and you've spent time in London. How have you found it from a personal perspective from a cultural perspective just your impressions of this visit I think for for me especially um, really thinking about this initiative and really realizing that what it comes from is thinking about racial disparities when I arrived here I wanted to see the vibrant communities and those and so I didn't go to some of the beautiful landmarks I didn't go to because there's so so much tension around those things for me. Um, but I went into the communities um, that I uh, wanted to know more about, and those communities were very diverse communities, um, such as Camden, and it was, and such as uh, Brixton, and um, realizing that as I was walking through those communities, I saw folks who could really benefit from a program like this. And then my thoughts went to exactly how, um, who's going to be chosen, what sites, what is that going to look like, how do we make sure, um, how are those folks going to get into, get the services that they need. Um, I think back to uh, coming over here, I had a very different picture of what the UK was and what it had to offer. Um, having the opportunity to go to some of the museums and see some of the gallery exhibits um, really um, gave me a different uh, picture. Um, and as I continue to tour and continue to check out places, I realized that there is a rich uh, history and I just would love to see uh, 
to be able to tap into that more. So I want to come back, but also I would love to see how this initiative really works in in those communities, absolutely. And then um, really talking to the folks in those communities and really thinking about police relationships, you know, thinking back to the United States and our relationships with the police um, and um, how complicated it has been. And wondering, um, looking at some of the reports and realizing some of the same issues are here and kind of thinking about how, how will this build trust within the community with the police and I could just see how this lead initiative would work in doing so, um, just on the piece of you knowing as a police officer that when you refer someone, that they're going to get a list of services and that they're, when you see them, you will know where they're at, where, they're, where, where they might be doing well or where they might be needing more assistance. So being here has been um, tremendously um, eye-opening for me. And um, as I continue to do this work, it, it just makes it even that much better. Absolutely. And Brendan, as a former police officer, uh, how has it been for you coming here and meeting our police services in your tour around England? What, what impression have you had? And I guess what are the, the commonalities and the differences between us? So I think the, you know, the main impression that I come, come away with is that, you know, there are police everywhere um, take this job to help people out, and they're trying to figure out how to best do that. You know, I think that we're all taught that the traditional way of helping people out is through enforcing the law, and that somewhere in our careers, it clicks that enforcing the law doesn't always work to help people out. In fact, sometimes it works the exact opposite and that that's actually not the answer. Um, so, you know, that my, my biggest impression coming away is that that same philosophy is here, that the officers are a bit frustrated because they're seeing the same people over and over again. They see both um, persistent offenders that they're not, sure, not really sure what to do, but then they also see the younger folks, and they see violence, and they're not really sure what to do with those that group either because they're realizing that the social fabric is broken as well and they need to get that fixed, but that they might not be the answer to get that fixed either and that there needs to be some other other answers. And I think that's, that's the, that commonality is, is everywhere, and there's this, that recognition that there's got to be a different answer. Talking to some of the officers that have been around for a while, especially some of the some of the supervisory rank, they want change. Like they want to be able to do different things, and I think they're trying to figure out how to get some of the younger officers to see things differently. I was really impressed by the the uh, focus on trauma informed policing, and actually having officers learn about adverse childhood experiences and being able to do that on a countrywide basis. Um, quite jealous, actually, to be able to do that on a countrywide basis. But I think that that's a piece that's missing in a lot of places that, you know, we don't look at what trauma does to people and we don't look at what happens with children when they grow up and they're exposed to certain things. And certainly, obviously, just because you're exposed to things doesn't mean you're always going to go down a certain path. But the fact is, is that we know through ACES research that there's a higher likelihood that you're going to and that if, in fact, you go down that path, whether it be um, become involved in criminal activity or have a substance use disorder, um, that 
it's that trauma that we need to actually get to that that's the root cause that we need to figure out. And that's what our case managers work on and lead. So it was impressive to see that. Um, I think the question always comes to be is like, are we actually getting through to people? You know, I was talking to one of the one of the supervisors and I said something about, you know, I was 23 when I came on the job. I barely, you know, knew what it the difference with the child and with the teenager and all that, you know, I didn't know anything about that. And he laughed and kind of said the same thing. You know, we come on this job when we're younger um, and we don't always know the differences. So I think the, the willingness is there by the police to make those changes and to try to figure that out. Um, and it's difficult to do that all the while to make those changes while you're still dealing with, the host of calls that are coming in and, you know, everything else that's flying at you to be able to do that. I was really impressed to see, you know, the officers that were at the meetings we had with the providers in the communities we were at. Clearly, they had really good relationships with those folks. I mean, everybody was on a first name basis. They were, you know, hey, I'll talk to you later. I'm going to give you a call later. I got something to do. You know, I love seeing that. I used to very much enjoy going to meetings where one of my beat officers was there and the providers, the community-based agencies were, you know, all clearly talking. And it wasn't just a show for me while I was there. Um, so it's, there's clearly a lot of inroads that have been made um, with those community-based agencies. And then just the willingness to have, you know, the willingness to have somebody who works for the football club come into the uh, holding area and talk to people and offer them help when they come out, that's pretty amazing. Uh, you know, I can say that in the United States, uh, there's not a lot of willingness to have somebody come into our holding area before somebody gets arraigned to, to talk to anybody. That's just not something that's open, and that's something that I think we can certainly learn from. I can certainly say if I was still the chief of police, I would be going back to Albany and automatically hiring people to come talk to people that have been arrested. So I, I think there's, I think it's clear, you know, the biggest thing that's impressed me is there's clearly a desire to do things differently. And there are a number of things that are being done differently. Um, but there's also clearly a long ways to go when it comes to that relationship with the community. And there's also the same things we face in the United States right now, I think, are facing the folks here in the UK of the you know, which direction are we going in? Are we going back to law and order? And what does that mean? Or are we going to recognize that we have folks that need assistance? And just because you're coming into contact with the criminal legal system doesn't mean that the answer is putting you in a holding cell. It's not being soft on crime when you don't put handcuffs on somebody. So what other work can be done other than, you know, being able to show that you arrested somebody? So that, that's a question I think everybody's trying to answer these days. Certainly in the United States we are. And I think that's, that's definitely an impression, though, that I have here, that there's still a desire to have the stick be out there. And I think we're seeing over and over again that the stick is not what changes people. And in fact, the stick can be more detrimental to what we try to do. Having seen our criminal justice system, what kind of changes do you think we should focus on in, in seeking to, to reform or improve the way we do things? You know, from what I've seen, it seems to be the front-end reform, the ability to be able to say, we don't need to take you into custody to divert you. We don't need to actually have a formal arrest and do that. 
we can do things on a pre-arrest diversion um, initiative. You know, we can say, hey, you've committed a crime, alleged to have committed a crime, and rather than me take you into custody and have that employee of the football club come in and do that outreach, like, let me call the person from the Blackpool Football Club right now and have them come here now, and I'm just going to step away, and you're, and you're done. Like, I'm done. I don't need to worry about it. And then, you know, this, the, the same thing of, of finding those other avenues of, you know, just like in the U.S. where lead as, has grown to say, like, hey, you know, we had this one pathway in, and then there was a recognition a lot from having officers on the street being like, we need another pathway in. You know, building off of that, you know, social contact referrals here might actually be the best things like officers on the beat. I already know the people. Let me go ahead and do that through this initiative. So I think there's there's a lot of growth that can happen there. And, and it's difficult. And I think it's more difficult when when you're looking at traditional policing and concerned about what decisions officers are making. And especially when it comes to if you're concerned about corruption and other things, Sometimes it's a matter of like, I'm letting go here. I'm giving people authority to make decisions that maybe they didn't, didn't usually make. Because when they make an arrest, a boss is involved because you're bringing them to the holding center and there's a boss and you don't have to worry about that stuff. But the right training and oversight, it's okay to be able to do that. So I think that it's that front end piece that, that needs to kind of be um, put out there. So that way that everyday cop, can go ahead and make those decisions and not arrest somebody and go ahead and get the folks the help they need without bringing them through the system. I would probably say the intentional collaboration piece, um, and that is really thinking about how the solicitors work with the case managers who work with the police and what does that truly look like? Mm. Um, is there a way that case managers can come in and advocate for their participants? Um, is there a way that they can have conversations with the solicitors on how their participants are moving forward? Mm. So I think that collaboration is so crucial because I saw it happening, but not intentionally. And when it's intentional, you're as a case manager, you're thinking at all times, how is this person moving forward and how do I make sure they're moving forward, not just their well-being, but everything that's connected to that, right? So that would be their court cases or their legacy cases if they have anything like that. That would be uh, thinking about if the police officer sees them in the community, how is he reacting to them? Does he here at the OWG, which we have discussed a little bit about, um, which is our operational work group, does he know the struggles of the trauma that this might impact, the trauma that this person has that might be the reason why they're working in their community in a certain fashion or a certain way. So that's that's huge for me is the intentional collaboration of really how do you connect the, the case managers, not just with the services, because they seem to have done a wonderful job with that. I saw that all across. It was just the solicitor piece that if that could be more intentional, that would be tremendous work. And thinking about how we do things here in our system, is there anything that you would want to take and, and take to, to the United States uh, and implement there? Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that constantly thought that I thought about when I went to go visit, first time ever visiting the suites, the jail suites, the holding holding suites, is the amount of time that your folks are in your holding suites is 20, it's, it's from 12 to 24, 
24 hours. I wish we could take something like that back to the United States because in the United States, that's not the case. Um, A person could be held in our justice system on a nonviolent charge for a long periods of time. Um, So just that whole, that time that um, folks are in the holding side, I really appreciated that. And then the other piece that I really would love to take back is the services that were, that when they were in that holding cells, the services that were provided instantly within those 24 hours were pretty amazing. Having the nurse, having the doctor, really talking to that um, that person about where they're at, how do we move you forward, what does that look like, is there anything we can work with you now? Sounds very familiar what we do as case managers, but having it be before they leave in those 24 hours is so crucial. So if anything to take back would be those two things. And when you describe the international work you've done, you've, you, you've met with so many different police forces. You mentioned Eastern Europe, South Africa, you've been here and other places. And you mentioned there's a common desire to help. Do, do you feel you see that in all those places you go? Are there similar challenges that that we're facing in in doing this work? Yeah, I think commonly um, across the board, whether it's in the United States or, you know, Ukraine, South Africa, Ireland, Scotland, the places we've been, the police that we've spoken to definitely want to help people out. You know, one of the things that we try to do, and I think one of the reasons why people do reach out to us internationally is LEAD is really about bringing a public health approach to public safety. Some folks might not realize that's why they're reaching out to us and that's why LEAD works, but it is that alternative public health approach. You know, public safety can't be provided just by um, arrest, prosecution, and incarceration. So I think there's a lot of interest in bringing public health solutions And a lot of the groups that we work with internationally, thankfully, that's what they're looking to do. You know, I think George Floyd, I think it let the world see that policing needs to change, but not just from the police end, not just from law enforcement. Society has to lay out what do they want from their police. I used to tell my community, put me out of business. I don't want to send my officers out to do homeless patrols. I don't want my officers arresting people for drug possession. I don't want my officers to be the primary responders for people with unmet mental health needs. So there has to be alternative approaches. There has to be a way to get people the help they need without it being the police leading that charge. That's actually a really dangerous way to have the the original way for everybody to get help there. Without knowing everything about the UK, like I am impressed by everything that happens in the holding cells. But I would also believe, I'm going to make an assumption for a moment, that people wind up getting, getting access to some of the care they get for the first time ever by going into a holding cell. That's not acceptable. What we have in the United States is not acceptable. So bringing a public health approach and doing it more on the front end is what people realize we need. The reason why we've expanded across the U.S. is because the jurisdictions that have adopted LEAD have said, we can't wait for our lawmakers anymore. They won't change the laws. They won't change the way we respond. So we're going to take it upon ourselves, utilize what's already in our hands to be able to do, and say we're going to divert people away from the system 
utilizing our discretion that's at our hands. At some point, we would hope our lawmakers catch up. It certainly doesn't appear that they ever going to actually catch up, but at some point we would hope they do. So, you know, the police and prosecutors that we work with around the world, they all seem to want to do this and they want to definitely help people out. Unfortunately, we need to change everybody's minds at some point. And that's the thing that takes a long time. You know, it's not turning... It's not turning a car around, it's turning a cargo ship around. But I do truly believe that, you know, if I look back at the people that were hired um, under my tenure in Albany, um, all of them said, you know, we want to help people. And if any of the people that did the interviews thought that they were just saying that because they thought it was the line, they were usually put in the no pile to not be hired. And certainly something that's come up um, in our discussions with you, which we have in common, is both in the, the UK and in the US, we're seeing a real insufficiency in the help for mental health that's come up in a couple of the conversations I've had with you and with service providers. Is there any way you visited that that hasn't been the problem too? No, I wish I could say that somebody's got to figure it out, but they don't. I don't think we, as in, in the entire world, we have not invested in mental health services, and especially mental health services out on the streets. It's apparent, you know, you just have to walk around. Take a walk around today, we'd be clear that, you know, hey, there's some folks that somebody could probably talk to and see how they're doing and what they need. Um, You know, in the U.S., we had a big issue where there were all kinds, you know, folks were institutionalized, there were a lot of abuses in the institutions, a lot of the institutions were closed as they should have been, but there was no investments in the community for community-based services. So mm. now we're faced with the issue of people who have no services. And you're right, we're seeing that everywhere we go. And the same thing, you know, folks are like, we need more mental health services. You know, where are those services? I think one of the other reasons why people like LEAD has Dana and Logan talked about that operations workgroup meeting and the coordination. When somebody's in lead, although everybody always thinks about substance use with us when it comes to lead, and rightfully so they do, you know, the, the great majority of people, I guess I should probably not make that big of a statement, but a lot of the folks that we help, um, their underlying issues are mental health issues and trauma issues. And we're never going to get to those things if all we're doing is looking at the substance use. So even if the substance use is why they got diverted in, when a case manager starts working with somebody and they're doing it from a trauma-informed care way, you know, they're eventually usually getting down to the fact that this person has got some underlying issues. And maybe for the first time ever, they finally go and get a mental health screening. Hmm. That, of course, usually takes some time to get to, but now we figure out, like, there's a root cause. If as... The United States or the UK or the world for that matter, if we don't start finally drilling down and like getting people mental health services and getting them where they're at, like we don't need to put people in institutions, you know, harm reduction model, like let's meet people where they're at. LEAD enables that to happen through that case management model, but also the operations work group where people can talk and be like, hey, you know, we've had Brendan in LEAD now for six months. We're finally to the point where he he said he wants to get a mental health screening. Like, he's talked to me now. He talked about some things that have happened. We're going to get him a mental health screening. If we have the mental health professionals at the table with us, they can also be, here are some of the services we have available. 
And unfortunately, they many times have to say, here are the services that aren't available because we're all filled up, but we're once again going to go on a waiting list. And as soon as we can get one of those slots open, we're going to get him in. And because the case managers are working with me every day, they can stay on top of things. And when that slot finally opens up, Dana says, hey, Brendan, the slot's open. Come mm-hmm. on, I'm going to take you to this appointment as opposed to losing people. Yeah. I mean, I'm one of the worst patients there ever is. If something happens at my doctor's office, I'm like, I'm not going to my appointment. If I'm living on the street and I've had all that trauma, all the issues, I'm never going to an appointment if I got to wait that long. But because I have the resource of Dana, I'm actually making that. So I think it's one of the reasons why people like the lead model so much because of the fact that, wait a second, we have a human that's that point of contact for this individual, not just somebody sitting in an office like, you know, every once in a while texting or calling the person. It's like, no, we have somebody right with them. I would say exactly the same thing. I mean, one of the things that I continue to see happen too is like the impacts of generational trauma and degenerational mental health. And so you kind of look at that and you go, they've never been served. Now they have kids that have never been served. And so absolutely there's not enough. But then one of the things that I'm hopeful for just work traveling around the country is the trauma-informed policing that's happening here because they're able to kind of stop and look and think about what brought this individual to this point. And so that allows them to kind of look at the whole person. And a lot of times you hear, this is not my role, this is not what I'm here to do, but when we don't have something in place, we all have to kind of be that village. And so knowing that the police officers are now being able to kind of go, oh, this person is not, it's not just their behavior, but there's something at bottom to this point, and being trauma-informed is really key to kind of moving it forward until we get our ducks in order, <laughs> when you think of that, of really thinking about mental health. Um, especially here, I was, uh, I didn't know. Um, and just hearing some of the providers talk about struggles around assessments, um, ADHD and um, autism um, in the waiting period, yes. Um, and when you think about our young adults that, that this initiative will be working with here, Um, How can um, this initiative kind of get that process moving faster when it's just thinking about mental health? But then also in the United States, we've dropped the ball. And it seemed like we dropped the ball at the same time, around 1980s, 1990s, when we decided that we're going to start closing down facilities. And we see those numbers increasing on both ends. And then we decided we would arrest folks. And now here we are trying to figure out uh, a new alternative to that approach. And I, I love one of the things is that it, it's not just one approach that's going to work for communities. It's many approaches, and this is, this is one of them. So Revolving Doors, I know, I look forward to, to future collaboration with the Lead Bureau to, to find these alternative approaches. And I hope take the best of both our systems and help each other promote diversion both before, ideally, Uh, but also after arrest. Uh, We look forward to working with you in the future. Thanks so much for taking part in this final podcast about the Lee Bureau. Thanks to all listeners, and I hope that if you haven't already, you listen to the first two episodes in this series and hear about the importance of the work that Lee Bureau do and the value of police-assisted diversion. Thank you.